Welcome to In That Case. My name's Joel Townsend, and this is my podcast about important pieces of litigation which have shaped Australian public life. You can find previous episodes of the podcast on the website at www.inthatcasepodcast.com, and you can also find them on iTunes and on Stitcher. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Townsend Joel C. And whether through the website or on Twitter, I'm very happy to receive your comments, questions, suggestions for future shows. So I'm going to cover in this episode and the next episode the iconic Marbo litigation, the famous extended hard-fought litigation, which led to two High Court judgments, two judgments of the full court of the High Court of Australia, and which resulted in the finding that, at least in some instances, native title, indigenous interests in land, had survived European colonisation of Australia. This is litigation which is familiar to many people in Australia, people who otherwise don't closely follow the law, are familiar at least with the basic contours of this finding, but many people don't understand the full detail of the saga which led to the finding of the High Court in 1992. And I was lucky enough for the purposes of this podcast to talk to Greg McIntyre, who was involved from the very conception of the litigation through to that uh, 1992 judgment. I'm going to focus in this first episode on Marbo number one, the first of the High Court judgments handed down. But I wanted to start, first of all, giving you a broad background to the litigation, how we got to the Marbo test case. And maybe a good place to start is in the Northern Territory Supreme Court in 1971, in a case called the Malerpum case. And this was a case which involved a challenge to mining operations in the Northern Territory on the basis that a group of Indigenous people had native title in the land uh, in which the mining operation was to take place. And that argument was rejected, and it was rejected on the basis of some common law principles. And those principles were to the effect that when land, land that was not conquered or ceded to it, but settled, that the colonial power was vested with ownership of all of the land, extinguishing any native title which existed. And importantly, settlement extended not only to land which was empty, which had been uninhabited, but land where the local people were deemed not to have sufficient levels of civilization, putting that in heavy inverted commas, which the colonial power which Britain would recognise. So in those circumstances, where it was found that Indigenous people didn't have that requisite level of civilization, the colonial power, Britain in the case of Australia, would take ownership of all of that land and native title would be extinguished. So the Malerpum case accepted that argument accepted that native title could not be relied on as a basis for resisting 
this mining operation occurring. And so it looked like there was no real prospect of an assertion of native title by Indigenous Australians. And so in the 1970s, following this case, you had a series of legislative land grants by Australian parliaments. Parliaments around Australia gave land by way of specific legislation, and it was legislation which didn't recognise pre-existing native title as such, but uh, conferred ownership or rights over the land to Indigenous people uh, by way of the exercise of legislative power, not legislative recognition. Against that background, there was uh, still a desire to try to assert native title. So the fight for native title had not, despite Malerpam, been entirely given up. And in that context, the people of the Murray Islands off the northern tip of Cape York uh, came under scrutiny. So these Murray Islands uh, were islands where the local Indigenous people had garden plots, had specific little plots of land in which they did gardening. And this was appealing to some of the people wanting to assert arguments, continued existence of native title, because it looked like something more like traditional European conceptions of land title. These were specific plots of land used for cultivation and they looked a long way from the sort of title which might be asserted by, say, a nomadic or semi-nomadica uh, where they hunted and gathered. So there was some planning done in order to bring a claim on behalf of people in the Murray Islands, relying on these uh, recognised locally recognised interests in garden plots, seeking to assert that native title had in fact survived European settlement. And in the early 1980s, there were proceedings issued in the High Court on behalf of several plaintiffs, uh, and that was litigation which ran throughout the uh, 1980s and into uh, the 1990s. There was a great deal of procedural wrangling and one of the first issues was how are we going to build a body of evidence on which to make a decision about whether native title survives here. And what ended up happening was that the High Court remitted that question, the question of the taking of evidence, to a Justice of the Queensland Supreme Court, Justice Moynihan. So the plaintiffs were to go off to Justice Moynihan to uh, lead evidence about the arrangements on the Murray Island, which would have formed the basis of the native title claim. Uh, and then the Queensland Parliament passed a piece of legislation which purported to extinguish all native title in the Murray Islands. And they filed a defence in the High Court relying on that legislation, saying that the litigation had to fail because even if native title in these garden plots had survived white settlement, it was now extinguished by this piece of legislation. And the plaintiffs filed in response to that defence what's called a demurra. So a demurra is a document filed with the court which says 
even if the facts asserted in this statement of claim, or as in this case, in this defence, are made out, it couldn't possibly constitute a good claim, or in this case, a good defence. And that was in this case because the plaintiff said the Racial Discrimination Act provides that the Queensland Parliament, in effect, can't pass this kind of discriminatory legislation. And because the Racial Discrimination Act is a Commonwealth piece of legislation, it prevails in the event of inconsistency over the Queensland legislation. Section 109 of the Commonwealth Constitution provides that in the event of inconsistency, the Commonwealth legislation prevails over the state legislation. So here, raving in this racially discriminatory way by extinguishing this native title, and as a result, they can't rely on that legislation as a defence. In the High Court, the plaintiffs were successful in relying on that demurra. They were successful in relying on the argument that the Racial Discrimination Act prevails and so the Mabo litigation could proceed. I started in my conversation with Greg McIntyre asking him a little bit about the background to the litigation. I wondered if I could get you to tell me a little about uh, your background. You obviously were involved in Kawata before Amabo and, and you, you were mm. involved in the very early discussions about about um, bringing the litigation which became Mabo. Mm. Yes. Um, what, what happened was, and I, I started out with an Aboriginal legal service in 1976-77, having been on the committee which set up the Aboriginal Legal Service in Western Australia. So it was a, the Justice Committee of the New Era Aboriginal Fellowship. Um, and it was at the time was chaired by Bob French, who was in a, a, um, a first year um, in his first year of practice as a legal practitioner. Um, and Fred Cheney, who you know of, and uh, Ron Wilson, who was then the Solicitor General. So um, I did a couple of years in Kalgoorlie um, when it was, uh, it had only been, the Kalgoorlie Office of the Aboriginal Legal Service had only been set up for six months when I first went out there. And I, during those two, the two years that I was there, I started going out into the desert. Um, and I was at the second meeting of the Pitjantjara Council, um, which later became incorporated and, and is now the... Um, well, it covers the whole Pitjantjara and Ngunnawal, Yankatjara lands in, the, in, the, in Central Australia, uh, including West, parts of Western Australia, the Northern Church in South Australia. So that sort of sparked my interest in land rights, uh, and I... I read a couple of articles uh, critiquing the Gove land rights decision, which had been made in 1970, um, suggesting that perhaps uh, Justice Blackburn had got it wrong in terms of the common law in Australia. And so in 78, I um, thought I should do something about it. So I applied with some encouragement from my boss at the Aboriginal Legal Service for a grant from the Institute of Aboriginal Studies uh, and 
commenced a some research on the topic of Aboriginal land rights at common law um, and looked at the case law in Canada and the United States and uh, New Zealand um, and was uh, my thesis was that, that local legal customs had been recognised in the common law in England that the right to dry one's nets in certain places and the right to dance around the maypole on certain days and it seemed to me there was some analogy between that and and customary rights of Aboriginal people in in Australia. So I started researching all of that and um, writing papers on it. Uh, And I completed that study after I spent a year working in the desert as a community advisor. And I went to Canberra and I had a look at the papers of the list of four of the Gove people um, and produced a couple of papers arguing that Australia could recognise land rights at common law. Uh, I presented that paper initially to a conference in Canberra where Ted Woodward was a speaker uh, and he was counsel for the Gove people and he said to me, oh no, that's not a good idea to run a a common law test case. Um, I tried that and it was unsuccessful and and of course in the Northern Territory went the legislative way. He was, he did the, he conducted the Woodward Royal Commission which reported to Gough Whitlam which resulted in the Aboriginal Land Rights Act of the Northern Territory. So I was a little bit disheartened by that, but uh, I then, um, that was in 1980, and in December 1980, I took a job with the Aboriginal Legal Service in Cairns. And um, as soon as I got up there, in fact, before I'd even arrived, the solicitors in the Cairns office had were aware that I'd done this research. And so they said, well, there's this case where we've got an opinion from Bruce McPherson uh, to do with John Kawata and the Winchenham people. It seems to have something to do with land. Might be up your alley. Um, And so I got this file with advice from Bruce McPherson saying that proceedings should be commenced under the Racial Discrimination Act. Uh, And so I issued the proceedings in the Supreme Court of Queensland, um, and they were later removed to the High Court, and uh, um, resulting in the Kawhart and Bilke Peterson case. Uh, at the same time, in early in the middle of 1981, the uh, James Cook University students and the Treaty Committee of Townsville were organising a conference on race relations and land rights. And Eddie Marbo was a co-convener of the Treaty Committee of, of Townsville, along with the historian Noel Luce. And I got a call from the student union representative asking if I'd come down and give a paper on land rights and common law as part of this conference, uh, based on them having being aware of the papers that I had written. And so I went to that conference, and um, there was a session called a High Court Test Case, question mark, which I delivered my paper at, and Barbara Hocking, a barrister from Melbourne, delivered a paper. Uh, and we argued that a High Court Test Case could and should be run. Um, and by the end of the conference, there'd been some side meetings, uh, and Eddie, the Torres Strait Islanders who were there, who included Eddie Marbo and Father Dave Passy, uh, had instructed me to commence the proceedings. 
And, and so Barbara Hocking went down to Melbourne with with writing instructions to find barristers who might be interested in running the case. Uh, and she spoke to a few people, but including Ron Caston, who said, oh, yes, he thought that was pretty interesting. He he had run the lay case uh, in Papua New Guinea, which is to do with customary rights of Papua New Guineans, uh, which was decided by the, which was considered while Papua New Guinea was part of the protectorate of Australia. And so he, he also, he rang Brian Kuhn Cohen, who'd worked um, in the Law Reform Commission on the Aboriginal Customary Law Reference. And so that's how the team was made up. So I was the instructing solicitor. And I had uh, Barbara Hocking, Ron Caston, QC, and Brian Kuhn Cohen as my team of counsel. In terms of the the issuing of the proceedings in the High Court rather than yeah. uh, in in the Supreme Court of Queensland, was that simply because of the fact you all recognised that uh, that was where things would end up and you all um, took the view that given the importance of the case, that was the appropriate place to issue? Uh, yes, and we, I think, thought that perhaps we may get a different kind of a hearing uh, in the federal jurisdiction than we might in the, the state of Queensland. Um, but as it turns out, we did issue in the, in the High Court, as you say, and we were able to do that for two reasons. One was that we were, there was an argument relating to Section 109 of the Constitution and the inconsistency between the land amendments to the Land Act regarding the deeds of grant and trust in Queensland and the Racial Discrimination Act. Uh, and we also joined the Commonwealth of the Party, which uh, entitled us to uh, go to Commonwealth, Commonwealth jurisdiction. The proceedings were issued, and then there was a, a lot of a procedural wrangling over a couple of years, and, and it was originally thought that you might be able to proceed on the basis of an agreed statement of fact, but that became quite difficult to reach as I read the, uh, the history. Y- yes. We, the the first um, response to our statement of claim was a strikeout application um, to be heard by a single judge of the High Court, and we all went down to Sydney um, ex- expecting to argue it. Uh, but counsel for Queensland, who was David Jackson, who was the lead counsel at the time, um, suggested that we have a conference before we went into court. Uh, we had a discussion and. He said, well, I can see that uh, there is a case here of some interest and I can see that you want to run it as a test case. Uh, Why don't we, of course, don't agree that what you're claiming is correct, but why don't we agree on some facts and we can then argue it in the High Court? Uh, That seemed like a good idea to us. So we went off for nearly a year collecting material. We collected volumes of material from Torres Strait, including the court record books going back to the turn of the 19th century, turn of the 20th century, um, and came back and presented them to the state of Queensland and they said, oh, no, we can't agree with those facts, uh, which was, took us a bit by surprise. So then the question was, how is that to be dealt with? Because, of course, the High Court uh, doesn't customarily hear trials and decide um, factual issues on the evidence um, and so we ended up before Sir Harry Gibbs to for him to determine 
how that factual, those factual issues would be decided. We, again, were arguing for perhaps a federal court judge uh, to have it remitted mm-hmm. to a federal court judge, arguing that the federal court, of course, has a, a nationwide jurisdiction. Uh, but Sir Harry was unconvinced by that and said, well, it's Queens, it, the land's in Queensland. That would be the natural uh, place for such a matter to be heard, and he remitted it to a Supreme Court judge of Queensland. But it, it was the Supreme Court judge was still acting effectively as an agent of the High Court. Uh, so his task was to hear the evidence and, re- and pr- produce a conclusion as to the facts to report back to the High Court so the High Court could determine the law. As I mentioned in the introduction, the Queensland Government sought to legislate away the native title claims of Eddie Mabo and the other plaintiffs by passing an act in 1985. It was called the Queensland Coast Islands Declaratory Act and it was passed directly in order to shut off the Mabo litigation before it had run its course. Joe Belke-Peterson introduced that piece of legislation to the Parliament and made the second reading speech and in essentially said, well, there are these five um, Torres Strait Islanders who are um, taking this case. Uh, it's going to cost the state of Queensland an awful lot of money. Uh, and shouldn't be tolerated, uh, and hence I'm introducing this piece of legislation uh, to de- to declare that they don't have any such rights. Um, so that that was they then they then pleaded the statute as a complete defence to our claim, uh, and we um, demurred to that, saying that this that the statute was invalid. Um, and so yes, it was on for young and old, I suppose. <laughs> tactically um, at that stage. Uh, and we we then eventually um, argued that in the High Court in Mabo number one case, we, we ran 13 arguments and were successful on one of them, which is the one relating to the Racial Discrimination Act. In the meantime, there, there were some sort of the odd historical circumstances going on at the time. The That was during the the period between 85 and 88 was the period when Lionel Murphy um, was had stood down from the High Court while he was prosecuted to, uh, for attempting to pervert the course of justice. And so we had there were six judges on the High Court at the time. Um, we were not at all clear that uh, we'd get a majority uh, out of those six, plus with the casting vote of the Chief Justice. Um, so we, uh, during some of that time, we there was some evidence heard for five weeks or so, but eventually we um, bit the bullet and argued the invalidity of the legislation. Mabo number one was heard in March and decided in December 1988. In the end, Four justices held that the Queensland legislation purporting to oust the native title rights of the plaintiffs was inconsistent with the Racial Discrimination Act and therefore invalid. Justices Brennan, Tui and Gordon held that the Act destroyed the traditional legal rights in and over the 
Murray Island that were possessed by the people to whom the plaintiffs belonged and they took the view that it was discriminatory in that it impaired those rights while and I quote, leaving unimpaired the corresponding human rights of those whose rights in and over the Murray Islands did not take their origin from the laws and customs of the Miriam people. Justice Dean agreed with the plurality judgment of Justices Brennan, Tui and Gaudron, and as a result, the Damara was successful, and Queensland couldn't rely on the defence provided by the 1985 legislation. Interestingly, Justice Wilson dissented. As we've heard, he had a background in supporting the rights of Aboriginal people in the legal system, and he went on as the president of the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission to chair the inquiry which resulted in the Bringing Them Home report on the stolen generations. Nonetheless, he found that the Queensland Act didn't create discrimination, rather he found that its effect was to remove a source of inequality formerly existing between the plaintiffs and persons of another race because the plaintiffs, as he said, were alone in the enjoyment of traditional rights. He acknowledged that though this was equality before the law, a deeper sense of injustice may remain, but he noted that this is because formal equality before the law does not always achieve effective and genuine equality. I asked for some of Greg McIntyre's thoughts about the court's judgment. As I read Marbo number one, the the Chief Justice and Justice Dawson essentially took the view that your Damara couldn't be upheld, but they didn't take the same view as Justice Wilson. They say, well, no, you need to, you, you can't decide this in the absence of um, uh, the taking of evidence, but they, they hadn't finally mm. concluded against you mm. on the inconsistency. Is that right? Yeah, that, that, that's right. The, it, it, it always seemed a slightly odd view that the Justice took of the nature of a demara. You know, I, I mean, demaras are quite rare concepts, um, but it, I tend to agree with the majority who said, well, the demara is on the basis of the facts as alleged uh, and an assumption as to their accuracy, and then you, the issue is whether, as a matter of law, those claims could possibly be upheld. Um, assuming that you're going to prove them, um, so I, I don't. I, I my view is that the Chief Justice and Justice Dawson didn't correctly apply the notion of a demara, um, but of course the majority did, uh, and we got the result. Following their success on the Demurra in Marbo No. 1, the team faced the challenges associated with the lengthy hearings before Justice Moynihan, who was taking evidence about what the facts were on the ground in the Murray Islands. They got some legal aid funding, but it wasn't plentiful and it wasn't guaranteed. And Greg McIntyre discussed with me a little of what that experience was like. 
you mentioned that th this has been legally aided this litigation so mm -hmm. did you have legal aid funding uh through to and including the the second high court hearing yeah we did ultimately um it went through various phases the the first when i issued the writ i applied to the then minister for aboriginal affairs ian wilson who was a liberal minister um he was, wasn't much pleased that we issued the writ and then applied for legal aid, um, but eventually granted us, granted me $50,000, um, and a year or so later, another 3000 uh, And then we went on to the Attorney General's um, test case funding scheme, and the way that worked was that uh, we did the work um, and then we put in our bills, and if we were lucky, 12 months or so later, the bills might be paid. Um, and at one stage, when we were shifting from the Supreme Court to the High Court, the Attorney General's Department decided that they should engage um, Mr. Freiburg, who later became a federal court judge, to give them advice on whether there was what we were saying had any merit. Uh, and he eventually did that. I, I was somewhat myth that his bill for that year was the same as my bill for the whole of a year's work um, in the course of those proceedings. Um, but, yeah, so eventually over the 10 years, uh, there was a total of $750,000 in legal aid provided for the plaintiff's team. At one stage, um, Brian and Barbara were working at $50 an hour, I think, um, and yes, it's the main one of the main issues was that that we we were never quite sure whether whether we're going to get the next instalment. Um, yeah, and it, it was running a trial was quite difficult. I lost both my airline credit cards because I was unable to to pay for the essays for witnesses on on time, um, so that was all a bit embarrassing and awkward and I had to borrow money from Ron Caston from time to time which is and Ron, Ron luckily was wasn't well had resources uh, and so he he loaned me money on a couple of occasions and he guaranteed Brian's accommodation when we moved when he had to move to Brisbane for the hearing things like that That's where things were at the end of Mabo number one. The plaintiffs and their lawyers were about to go into more hearings before Justice Moynihan, taking the evidence on which the High Court would ultimately rely. The situation in relation to how that evidence might unfold and in relation to funding was very uncertain. And next time, We'll talk about how that evidence unfolded, about Justice Monaghan's determination and the ultimate hearing before the High Court on Mabo Number 2. Very happy to hear your feedback about this episode or any of the other episodes I've released. I'm particularly conscious with litigation as complex and as publicly important as Mabo that it's very uh, easy to get things wrong and it's important to try to get them as right as possible. So please let me know if I've missed anything or, uh, or got anything wrong. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. Uh, you can find me once again 
also on the website at www.inthatcasepodcast.com and on Twitter at, at Townsend Joel C. Thanks to Greg McIntyre for uh, his generous uh, contribution, his time and his thoughtfulness. And thank you all for listening. I look forward to joining you next time. Thank you.